Hi, it's Holly here, and we are together again at the second location. And once again, I am discussing the Austin Yogurt Shop murders. In the timeline of events, it's eight years after the murders, and the police are focused on four suspects. Two of the suspects have confessed, implicating themselves and the other boys, but two of the suspects but two of the suspects deny any involvement in the murders. And now it's time for some arrests. Now the press get wind of the arrests before they actually happened. A headline in the local paper noted arrests were likely, and the article stated that two of the four accused had confessed. The police scrambled to get identifications of the boys by witnesses before their pictures made the front page. Because once their pictures are in the front page, those identifications they're going to be a lot less trustworthy. But it also tells you they're arresting these guys before they've ever done any type of photographic lineup for all those customers in the store that had seen suspicious characters in the yogurt shop that night. They've never done a photo lineup with these four young men, but still they're arresting them. Now, before the four guys were arrested, the investigators brought in the witnesses that had saw, you know, the various suspicious men in the shop that night in an attempt to get an identification of the four accused men as being someone that someone had seen in the yogurt shop that night. Lucella Jones couldn't identify Mike, Rob, or Maurice out of a lineup. And Lucella Jones was the witness that saw two young men at a table together that were like playing and fiddling around with something in a paper bag. And Daryl Croft, now he's the ex-military police officer who noticed a young man in a military surplus-type jacket in the shop the night of the murders. He couldn't identify Mike Robb or Maurice as that weird young man in the military jacket. So we're getting no positive identifications of the four accused guys. Now, the police pressured Lucilla further, asking which of the men looked most like the man she saw in the shop that night. And she picked out Maurice. And it's interesting, his picture was the only color picture. So typically when you do photograph lineups, you want there to be a similarity to all the photos. Just an example, if a witness had said, I saw a blonde man rob the convenience store, and you do a photo lineup of eight people, those eight people, the suspect's in there. But the other people they're using just to fill out the lineup, they all need to be blonde as well along with the suspect. You can't have one person that glaringly stands out. You also, the pictures should be kind of similar too. Having one color and the rest aren't color, that's not normal. That picture stands out. So I don't think, I don't think it's a quality lineup. You know, it's suspicious to me to a certain degree. I mean, when you see only one picture as color, it makes it stand out. And when you're looking at things, it grabs your eye. And it makes you think maybe that's the suspect I was supposed to be looking for because his picture is different. Why would they include a color picture with all these black and white? Unless there was something special about it or it's the only picture they had. You know what I mean? Like, it makes that you think that that picture means more than it does. But it makes you focus on that picture and its importance because it just shows you that that's the picture they have of that guy. They don't have a black and white picture of him. But they need that picture to be in there. It's just, you know, the investigator's not doing a great job here. The picture of Maurice also did not accurately depict him. It was, like, the picture of Maurice was, like, cropped. Like, really cropped. Like, close up to his face. So close that his hair was not in the picture. And his bright, really bright blue eyes, they look dark brown. So it's a really not good picture of, of Maurice. And they had months to put this photo lineup together. There was really absolutely no excuse to not do a proper job. Four days after the headline announcing that arrests were coming, arrest warrants were issued. As Maurice and Forrest were 16 and 15 at the time of the crime, they would first face juvenile court, where jurisdiction could be waived after a certification hearing if it was decided that the two young men would be tried as adults. 
because they were juveniles at the time of the crime and not charged before they turned 18, if they weren't tried as adults, all charges against them would have to be dismissed. After the arrest warrants were issued, the next day all four men were arrested at the same time, and a press conference followed, and the TV programming in the Austin area was interrupted with the breaking news of the arrests and the faces of the four accused young men were all over TV. The mayor made a wildly inappropriate statement that in 1991, Austin had lost its innocence, and today they had regained their confidence or some bullshit like that, which is basically a see you later presumption of innocence. Language like this from a government official is inappropriate pretrial. This is post-conviction talk. These men, innocent until proven guilty, presumption of innocence. There's been no trial. We don't know if they're the four people that did this, so let's just stop this with this parade. We got them finally. No. You do that once you got a conviction. I mean, I'm sorry. It just it really bothers me when public officials weigh in like this. So I'll say this. Local officials just shut the hell up and leave the legal bullshit to people that know what they're doing. Okay? While in jail, Forrest was put on suicide watch. And the poor guy cried when his bail was set at $5 million. He had no chance of getting out. And they had no evidence against him. And he was completely innocent. The man should never have been arrested in the first place. If I was him, I would have cried too. Forrest's bail was lowered later to $1 million, and bail was put at $1.5 million for Maurice. Now, I don't understand why the heck Forrest's bail was at $5 million and was lowered to one, unless Maurice's was also higher and it was lowered to one point five. because Forrest, there's a lot of the accounts when Mike and Rob are confessing, they don't even have Forrest being in the building. So if anybody's going to get a lower amount of bail, it would be Forrest in my opinion. Now, the two older guys, Mike and Rob, they don't get bail. They were not juveniles at the time the crime occurred. And um, basically, they're going to be in for the duration. Family members of the girls expressed both surprise and relief at the arrests. Bob Ayers, Amy's dad, said, I hope they got the right guys. Other family members noted that the upcoming trial might dredge up difficult images and result in answers to questions that might be hard to deal with. And that's exactly what happened. Now remember, Rob is living in West Virginia, and he makes a misguided attempt to fight extradition, which I think was just a waste of money that he could have used for his upcoming murder trial. I mean, states almost always extradite between each other. Unless you can show mistaken identity, it's basically a done deal. You're going to be extradited. This isn't like extraditing between other countries where they're like, well, we don't have the death penalty in France, so we're not going to extradite to Texas because... That person could be executed there. That's not a thing here within America. Between our states, you commit a crime, a four-person murder in Ohio, you're going to get extradited if you're living in Maine. It's just the way it is. And I think Rob's family, I just got the feeling that they might have been behind the idea of fighting extradition. And then they lost hope when they lost that battle. And that's just my guess. I could be wrong, but I think a lawyer really should have warned them that fighting extradition successfully was almost an impossibility. So they really should have just focused on the murder trial. Giving them any hope of actually fighting extradition, thinking that was even possible, I think that was just a cruelty played upon Rob and his family. Because I'm not going to say zero chance, but what's that thing that's right beside zero chance? Because that's what chance he had of successfully fighting extradition. Instead, he should have been focusing on getting ready for the murder trial, getting ready for the preliminary hearings, you know, all that stuff. The testing that would need to be done. Like, there's a lot of preparation that's going to go into a huge trial like this. And the extradition, that fight, it's a waste of time and it's a waste of money. My point is, Rob is extradited to Texas. 
And I'm not going to go over the entire process because it was legal and completely predictable. I just think it shouldn't have been done. I think it gives lawyers a bad reputation when they do things like that, that there's no success in, but they still took those people's money. I'm guessing they did not do it pro bono. I could be wrong. But to me, there's something slimy about giving Rob and his family hope that he might not ever have to face trial on this because I just don't see a world where that would actually have happened. The prosecution's first hurdle is getting Forrest and Maurice out of the juvenile court system so they could be tried as adults. If the charges against Forrest and Maurice remained in the juvenile system because of the time that had passed since the crime had occurred, all charges, like I said, against them would have been dismissed. The juvenile court appointed lawyers for the two men, and the adult certification hearing began about five weeks after their arrest. Because of this hearing, the prosecution had to show their hand a little bit, you know, a little sooner than they really had planned on doing. And the defense got a little pre-trial peek of what they might be up against. When confronted with inaccuracies in the confessions, that you know, the confessions slowly evolved during the questioning until the confessed statements were more properly matched to the evidence at the scene. You know, the police testified that it took extra questioning by them to get the truth out of the accused men. You know, they're not guiding the questioning and giving leading questions that let the suspects know what you're trying to get them to say, you know, tipping them off. That's not it. They just took extra questioning to get the truth out of them, please. The police claimed that they had to help the boys dig to unearth buried memories. Now, I don't put much stock in retrieve memories, but imagine when a police officer helps suspects recover buried memories. I mean, I don't even really trust it when a psychiatrist does it. Let's just have a unqualified Yahoo do it. No. It's unqualified people using junk science to explain away flawed confessions. It doesn't get much worse than that. And according to my therapist, it's much easier to plant a memory than recover a hidden one. And she's a genius, so I believe her. So applying that theory, I would say that it would be easier for the police to plant memories than dig them up from the recesses of one's mind. At the certification hearing, the prosecution presented the story that on that Friday night, the boys murdered the girls at the yogurt shop. And then hours later, that night going into Saturday morning, the boys stole a Pathfinder from the car lot and went on a joyride where they ended up driving out of town so one of the boys could dump his girlfriend. And then they stole some gas from a gas station and returned the Pathfinder to the car lot and went home. Now, the defense was able to track this timeline of events as the Pathfinder was actually stolen on Saturday night going into Sunday morning, not Friday night going into Saturday morning, you know, immediately after the murders. It looks worse if that Pathfinder was stolen Friday going into Saturday because it looks like the boys are trying to flee the area where the crime occurred. But that's not the case. And the prosecution didn't realize this until the defense was able to point that out. Because somewhere in the logbooks, the theft of that car was written down with the wrong date. But the defense was able to figure it out. And the prosecution was really relying on this idea that the four boys murdered the girls, then almost immediately stole that Pathfinder from the car lot to try to get out of town but the vehicle had been taken a full day after the murders. The cop that took down the call from the gas station after the boys did a, you know, a gas and scoot. I don't know what you call that when you still, oh, God, no, what you call that, a gas and scoot? That sounds wrong. But, like, whenever you, you know, you gas at a gas station and you don't pay. Well, when the gas station attendant reported that, the cop wrote down the wrong day for the incident. He wrote it down as being Saturday morning. 
when it was actually Sunday morning. And like I said, the girls were killed on Friday night. The cop that was on the stand when this error was revealed, he refused to accept that the police got it wrong. And that right there, oh, he's confronted with, with evidence that shows that it does not happen the day this man's saying it happened. He's like, mm, nope, we got it right. The dispatcher that had received the call about the stolen gas had recorded the wrong date on the form. But the cop couldn't admit that they could be wrong about the timeline. It's not a good look when cops can't admit they're wrong. What the hell else are they blind to? Now, the defense, at the certification hearing, the defense argued that the police department only accepted the parts of the confessions that fit the crime scene, while ignoring the other parts that didn't fit. And the most troubling part of the hearing was when the lead investigator was questioned about Maurice's 22, because the investigator never referred to the most recent ballistics test, which had been conducted after the arrest. And those tests, once again, failed to tie the gun to the murderers in any way, just like the testing that had been done eight years earlier. Nothing is tying that 22 to the crime scene. The police knew that the 22 was not the murder weapon, but they did everything they could to hide that from both the defense and the court. In his closing argument, the prosecutor stated that the gun retrieved from Maurice Pierce at the mall was the 22 caliber that had been used in the offenses. No evidence had been entered at the hearing to support this claim. In fact, all ballistic testing up to this point had shown absolutely no connection between this gun and the murders. I feel like this prosecutor should be heavily reprimanded, and honestly, if not disbarred. Based on that statement, it's an out right lie. I'm going to say it's an outright lie because they have the 1991 testing when Maurice was first picked up with that gun in the mall. That showed it wasn't a match. There was nothing linking it. Now, I don't think the prosecutor had access to this new testing. I think the police might have been even hiding that from the prosecution at this point. But still, based on the earlier testing that was done eight years before, that showed that there was no match to the bullets at the crime scene. There was nothing tying that gun to the crime scene based on the 91 testing, and if the police aren't telling this guy, the prosecutor, about this newer testing, he's still incorrect to say that that's the weapon because he has nothing to support that. But I do think the police might be hiding the new testing from him. I mean, that statement should never have been allowed in the closing. I don't know if the defense objected to it. They should have because there's no testimony to support that statement, but it got in. This is part of the problem because the prosecution goes on to hide the fact that the 22 that Maurice was caught with at the mall a week after the murders couldn't be tied to the crime scene. They hid this from the defense for as long as they could. The defense had no idea that the gun was tested when Maurice was first picked up in 1991. They had no idea. And that the ballistic test didn't connect the gun to the murders. They had no idea that testing had even been conducted, let alone no the results of the testing. And in 1999, when tests were conducted again, the results came back that it wasn't the murder weapon. But once again, this was hidden from the defense. One almost thinks that the state thought it could keep doing ballistic tests on this gun until they found an expert that would say that it was a match. My point is that both the court and the defense were left with the impression that there was ballistic evidence that connected Maurice Pierce's 22 to the crime scene, even though repeated testing had shown the gun was not the murder weapon. Only a finding of probable cause was needed to move the charges from Forrest to Maurice, from juvenile court to regular old adult court, and this is a low and easily met threshold. 
especially when the state lies and said a defendant's gun was the murder weapon, and the judge remands the case to the adult court system. Now, in some states, you would go to a preliminary hearing at this point and then right into the trial. But here in Texas, all four men would face a grand jury and need to be indicted before any trial would commence. And I think, but I'm not 100% sure because I don't know really anything about Texas law, but I think this is because this is a potential death penalty case. I know from when I did the Tommy Ziegler episodes, I learned from that in Florida, if you're going to seek the death penalty, you have to get an indictment for that from a grand jury. And I'm just thinking maybe in this case, that's what's going on here in Texas. Now, Maurice and Forrest could be released if they were able to post 10% of their bail. And Forrest's bail had been lowered from the initial $5 million. Once it became clear that there wasn't that much evidence against him, and his bail was lowered to $1 million, and his aunt, his aunt, not his mom, not his dad, his aunt, drained her pension fund to bail her nephew out of jail. She put up almost $38,000 to allow him to gain his freedom. And Forrest has one hell of an amazing aunt. But she knew he didn't do this, and that he wouldn't flee, and she was right. But Maurice, his bail... One and a half million, he's not able to raise that, and he remained in jail. Of course, the two older boys that had confessed, Rob and Mike, they don't get bail, so they're staying in. Now, Rob's attorney wanted to take advantage of an examining trial, which is where an incarcerated but not yet indicted defendant, meaning that the evidence against the accused hasn't been successfully presented to a grand jury, this defendant can request a hearing before a magistrate to determine whether the accused can be released until indicted. Now, honestly, this is less about getting Rob released. It's an opportunity for the defense to get a sneak peek at the evidence against Rob. And the prosecutor's office desperately wanted to avoid this hearing. The prosecutor saw a delay for this hearing, and a shorter than requested delay was granted. And one day for the scheduled examining trial that really would have helped the defense prepare for trial, Rob Springsteen was indicted by a grand jury, and his right to an examining trial disappeared. It's confusing because all states are different. My state, we do preliminary hearings. This is like basically what he lost. He lost the ability to have a preliminary hearing. When you're indicted by a grand jury, that's a closed proceeding. The defense is not in there. They're not able to hear the case put on by the prosecution. And also the defense does not present evidence before a grand jury. So you don't get a sneak peek. This is a big thing here without losing that examining trial because it's good in a case like this, when the state's being rolled tight-lipped about what they have, you want to kind of see what you're going up against as early as you can, so you can start figuring out what your trial strategy is going to be. Now, the same grand jury that indicted Rob would also indict Mike and Maurice, probably because they acted like that 22 was the murder weapon. But I don't know, because grand juries are secret. But the grand jury failed to indict Forrest. Now, desperate to get Forrest to trial, the prosecutor sought to extend the grand jury's term by an additional 90 days. And they are really just really starting to piss me off. But I get it. They're doing nothing that's outside the bounds of the law. It's just they have very little on these guys and almost nothing on Forrest. And what they got on Maurice is basically a lie that his gun is the murder weapon. You know, a lie told by the prosecution. And almost nothing on Forrest, really. Actually, nothing on Forrest other than those two claims by Rob and, and Mike that he was somehow the lookout. So I just say let Forrest go. And the difference is that unlike me, the state really believes those convoluted confessions by Mike and Rob. And, you know, I don't. So it really bothers me when you see prosecutors desperately try to get Forrest to trial. I mean, I'm seeing innocence and they're seeing guilt. And that's the difference. They think they're doing the right thing. I mean, science has told us now they are not. 
Now, that initial grand jury, even though it had been impaneled for an additional 90 days, they refused to indict Forrest, which causes the prosecution to impanel a second grand jury, which once again refuses to indict Forrest. And he goes free at this point, and he is never charged in the murders. He had been arrested, but when they couldn't get a grand jury to indict him, he's let go free. So what we have after the four young guys are arrested is we have three people indicted. Rob, Mike, and Maurice all indicted on murder charges. Forrest is never indicted and he goes free. Now, first to trial is Rob. Now, he is going to be convicted and sentenced to the death penalty. After Rob is tried, then Mike is tried and he gets life in prison. And after Mike is tried, all charges against Maurice are dropped. Now, charges could be brought against him again later if they find more evidence, but the charges are dropped against Maurice after Mike's trial. Now, Travis County, that's where the murders occurred. All places have these different ways that they give indigent people counsel. Some places have a public defender's office where people are actually employed there. But like I said, all places are different. And in this county, the judge actually appoints lawyers to the defendant when they are in need of an attorney. Well, Mike Scott family isn't happy with his first appointed lawyer or his second, and it kind of goes on from there. So his family scrapes together money to hire their own attorney. And I'm a little bit apprehensive about who they eventually pick as his attorney because that guy is more of a civil rights attorney, and this would be his first big-time capital murder case. And he's also serving a bar association suspension. Now, Mike's lawyer will have a co-counsel, but geez, this is a tough case to begin a criminal career with. And Mike's family paid for both of these attorneys. And it's interesting because all the trials were separated, but the lawyers did seem to work together on preparing for trial to a certain degree. But while the trials were all separate, they were also not going on at the same time in different courtrooms. So there's a great length of time going on because you have Rob's trial and then there's a delay before Mike Scott's trial because the judge appointed a death penalty qualified attorney to represent Mike alongside the civil rights attorney that Mike had retained. And then after that would be Maurice's trial. Maurice, all charges are dropped against him, but he was held in county jail for three years waiting for his trial. Three years. He never goes to trial. That's a lot of your life to lose right there. So I'll talk a little bit about just basically trial preparations, what the investigators and like the prosecution and the state has to do to get ready for trial. And then we'll talk about also, of course, what the defense does to get ready for trial. Okay. Now, as both the prosecution and the defense are preparing for trial, they start having pre-trial discovery hearings before the trial judge about the turning over of evidence to the defense. The three main issues were, first, the defense's access to forensic results, such as DNA testing, ballistics testing, and overall processing of the crime scene, like fire analysis. And right here, I'm going to say the defense should have complete access to all of this information. It should not be an issue where anybody's arguing about this. And the prosecution should be embarrassed to even try to prevent a defendant's access to forensic evidence. I mean, I would really love for courts to start really pressing Brady in a more stringent manner. Give the ruling some real power. Make trials fair. Hold prosecutors accountable. And the second major pretrial issue that's brought up in motions is the potential omission of Rob and Mike's confessions, both against themselves and against each other. And the third issue 
is the possible misconduct on the part of police and or the prosecutors. Now, on the topic of the evidence, there were 33 file boxes of evidence containing about 55,000 pages of documents. And now the original juvenile judge had ordered that all evidence be copied and turned over to the defense when the case against Forrest and Maurice was still at the juvenile court level. And it appears that the prosecutors had not done this because access to these file boxes was still an issue before the trial of Rob and Mike, with the prosecutors claiming that only 12,000 pages of documents were actual Brady material or actually material that needed to be turned over. So even though the juvenile court judge had ordered these 55,000 pages of documents be turned over to the defense teams, it wasn't done. And going into trial, the prosecution is really trying to withhold evidence from the defense. I mean, that's the feeling I get on it because they're really trying to hide best they can that ballistics has not tied Maurice Pierce's gun to the murders at all. And there's questionable things going on about the theories of how the fire started as well. Now, Rob's team moved to suppress his confession in a motion that described how Rob's confession was obtained within the bowels of the police department in Charleston, West Virginia. You gotta love wordsmithing like that. The lawyer that Rob's family had hired from him in West Virginia and the West Virginia local cop who denied that lawyer access to Rob were flown in to testify at the suppression hearing. The cop testified that he did tell Rob's lawyer that Rob had been Mirandized and that Rob had waived his Miranda rights, when in fact, neither of those things had happened. Rob had not been Mirandized and he had not waived his Miranda rights. The trial judge rules against Rob and his confession will be admitted at his trial. I think this is an incorrect ruling. I think because he wasn't Mirandized, I think the case law that the cops relied on to keep his lawyer away from him, I don't think it applies because because the case... In that situation, the suspect had been Mirandized and had waived their Miranda rights. In Rob's situation, he had not been Mirandized. So it's a different factual situation, and I think his confession should have been excluded, but it wasn't. Now, Mike Scott's lawyers also moved to suppress his confession, saying that the confession was not made voluntarily and freely without compulsion or persuasion as required under the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure. Now, the judge didn't rule immediately on the defense's request for full discovery, or on suppression of the confessions. I will say both confessions do come in. But the judge keeps delaying a lot of his rulings on motions for a long period of time. The inclusion of the confessions will be an important issue on appeal, and both the defense teams knew that, and they properly preserved the issue so it could be reevaluated later. Because not only is the importance of Rob's confession to be able to use it against Rob, and Mike's confession being able to be used against Mike, even though they recanted them, their appeal is actually going to be successful on is Rob's confession being used against Mike and Mike's confession being used to implicate Rob. They have success on the appellate level with how their confessions were used against each other, but we'll get to that later. There's two issues with the confessions and their admissibility. First is the ability to use Rob's confession against Rob and the ability to use Mike's confession against Mike, even though they recanted their confessions, whether or not they'll still be able to be used against them at trial. That's a really more straightforward issue, especially with Mike Scott. For Rob, it's not straightforward at all because his lawyer was kept from him, and I think his confession needs to be tossed. And for Mike, there's some problems with the, you know, the gun held to his head during part of the questioning, which I think could lead to his confession being tossed as well. But even a tougher evidentiary issue confronting the judge was going to be, could each defendant's confession be used against the other defendants? Like, could Rob's confession be used against Mike and vice versa? Now, this would not be a problem if they both hadn't recanted their confessions. If Mike was willing to testify at Rob's trial, 
trial and implicate him, and Rob was willing to testify at Mike's trial and implicate Mike, the confessions could be used against each other. But the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution, it details a defendant's right to confront their accuser. It's called the Confrontation Clause. You have to be able to confront witnesses that have testimony against you. But when this conflicts with another defendant's right under the Fifth Amendment, because you can't be compelled to give incriminating testimony. So the problem is you can't make another defendant, you cannot compel them to testify if it's going to incriminate them. That's their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Now it's coming up against the other defendant's Sixth Amendment right to confront their accusers. Which one trumps the other? How can we protect both the defendant's rights, both their Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights? It's a little confusing, but the prosecution comes up with an idea of editing each of the defendant's statements so it aligns with the defendant's confession without accusing the other defendant of anything. And I want to say right now, I don't even think this is even possible. I mean, it sounds preposterous. It's even worse when the prosecution reveal they actually only plan to remove the defendant's name that's on trial from the confession and any pronouns referring to him. And that's just too stupid for words. All they're doing is, out of Rob's confession, they're just eliminating basically Mike's name. But they're going to use that against Mike at his trial. Honestly, I would just say, if I was the judge in this case, I would have tossed both confessions. They were clearly coerced. And the, this issue wouldn't have even been on the table. You toss Rob's confession because his lawyer wasn't granted access to him. You toss Mike's confession because of that gun to the back of his head. And then you don't even have to get to the issue of whether or not the confrontation clause is being violated. But because the judge rules that these confessions are coming in, he has a situation where another even more demanding ruling is going to be required. But even though he didn't do that, at these early pretrial hearings, the judge is really keeps putting off on making final determinations on these motions. And I don't like that because it's delaying. The defense needs to know this stuff so they can start planning what their trial tactic is you know, what their strategy is. And I mean, the prosecution kind of needs that too, really. Like things need to be kind of settled so you know what you're doing. So initially you got all these motions and you're not getting any rule, hardly any rulings from the judge. And then the prosecution is still trying to get their case in order because deep down they realize they have no evidence against these guys other than their very confusing confessions. And since 1999, the lead investigator in the yogurt shop murders had been submitting Maurice's 22 for ballistics testing. Well, actually, John Jones, the original investigator, had Maurice's gun tested when Maurice was originally brought in for questioning, you know, in 1991 after he took that 22 to the mall. And the gun didn't match the bullets recovered from the crime scene. But the new investigators weren't going to let negative test results stop them. And they sought further testing. So we've had this gun tested twice. And so far, it's not been able to be linked to the crime. The defense has no idea that the gun has not been linked to the crime scene at all. After two failed tests, the investigators submit the gun again for further testing. After an analyst in Texas had concluded that the bullets were too damaged to compare, next the gun and bullets were sent to the ATF. And the ATF found that after testing, which included firing Maurice's gun through telephone books, that the bullets from Maurice's gun had impressions distinctly different from the bullets used to kill the girls. Now, this testing from the ATF had happened in May of 2000, and the results were available before the certification hearing for Forrest and Maurice. In the prosecutor's closing argument at that certification hearing, the prosecutor stated that it had been determined that Maurice's gun had been used in the murders. 
and the lead investigator would testify that he had simply forgotten to inform the DA's office of the ATF results that had showed conclusively that it was not Maurice's gun that had been used in the crimes and it had just slipped his mind and the officer didn't mention that the gun didn't match the bullets at the certification hearing and he failed to include it in any reports. And I'm just going to call bullshit here. Because if this test result had proven that it was Maurice's gun, I'm sure he wouldn't have forgotten to mention that to the DA's office. And the second level of bullshit is, he says he never mentioned it to the DA. Okay, that means the DA has no idea what the ballistic test results are, if no one's ever mentioned it to him. Then why is he saying at a certification hearing, why is the prosecutor saying in his closing argument that test results have shown that that gun was the gun that was used to kill the girls, if there's a match? Either way, it's a lie. It's a lie because even if he hadn't been told about these results that showed that the gun didn't match the gun at the crime scene, he'd never been shown results that said that Maurice's gun was the murder weapon. So it's a lie either way. And I just don't get how that doesn't seem more monumental to people. And the whole time, the defense is not finding this out because they're really trying to hide these ballistics results for as long as they can. And I just don't buy this that the police forgot to tell the prosecutor about the ballistic results because the police only ever seemed to forget about evidence or test results that disproved their theory. But they did eventually turn over all ballistic reports to the defense because legally there's no way they're going to be able to exclude that. That's Brady material. The defense needs to be able to see that and they were doing everything they could to keep it from happening. Personally, I just think all this testing should have been done before the four guys were ever investigated again. Check that gun again, if you really feel the need to. I mean, you already had it checked once in 91, and, you know, it was determined not to match. But if you feel like these guys are the people that did this, and you want to put the focus of the investigation on them again, then go ahead, you do that, but just test that gun again. Because there's nothing there. I don't know why these investigators would think these are the four guys, based on... There's nothing. So nothing ties them to the scene. Sure, Maurice owned a 22, but it wasn't the murder weapon. It means nothing. Now, the press start to hear things about maybe the case not being as solid as they once thought it was, because despite a gag order, the press found out about the ballistic test results, and it was in the local papers and on the local TV news. The prosecutors were pissed off, and the prosecutors are salty. They are mad that it got out to the press that Maurice's gun was not the murder weapon. And they're looking for a way to turn that leak about the ballistics report to their advantage. And the prosecutor gets up on her high horse and said because it was clearly the defense team that had violated the gag order by releasing the ballistic results that showed that Mercy's gun was not used in the murder to the press, and it couldn't be determined who it was on the defense team that had leaked that, all of the defense lawyers' access to the 33 file boxes of evidence should be severely limited. Prosecutors requested that all boxes stay in the DA's office, that no items be removed or photocopied, and the defense team could only look at the boxes at the DA's office and take notes on the box's contents. And the judge agrees with this. I mean, I can't get over that. Because something got out pre-trial, and it is a violation of a gag order, so sanction the defense if you can prove it's them. Sanction them monetarily. I mean, these are, well, at least you could with the public defenders. You could sanction them monetarily, take hours, paid hours off of them. But to not let them have access to the evidence, that's not an acceptable sanction in my viewpoint. Because right there, when the prosecution did that, that's when it really kind of all turned for me. And I decided that the prosecution team was basically despicable. You know, a win at all costs group of monsters hell-bent on a conviction regardless of guilt. 
That's just my opinion. They were mad that it got out. The, the ballistics didn't match. That's going to have to come out at trial unless they were honestly trying to keep that from even coming out at trial. I don't know. But they were mad that got out pre-trial and they saw an opportunity to harshly, harshly punish the defense in a way that's going to affect their performance at trial. I'm disgusted by it. They are more upset that the press found out about that ballistics report than they are about their own withholding of the ballistics report from the defense. And the prosecutor's own lie in the closing argument in the certification hearing that the gun was determined by ballistics to be the murder weapon, which was just a lie. I mean, the prosecutors lied about evidence, but what bothers them is that the press found out about the ballistics report, not about, you know, their own misdeeds, which I guess no one's ever upset about that. But, I mean... The prosecution uses this leak that violates the gag order to punish the defense team. These guys were on trial for their lives. And the prosecution's petty overreaching, trying to deny their legitimate access to evidence, is disgusting, serves no purpose in the pursuit of justice. It makes me sick because this is sick. These are real people we are dealing with. They have rights. But it doesn't seem like the prosecutors give a shit about anything other than winning. But the prosecution, they really have to rail against these leaks to the press because they have shit to hide. Remember that gun to the back of Mike Scott's head during his confession? I'm thinking they want to keep that quiet, too. I mean, seriously, this stuff just makes me hate people. Now, once again, the judge did not rule immediately on the prosecution's request to basically cut off the defendant's right to access to the evidence. I mean, this guy, he really enjoys delaying a ruling. It's like a theme that keeps coming back up in this case of delayed rulings. It reminds me of Delphi a lot in some ways. I mean, it's really kicking the can down the road, but you can only do that so far. And generally, I don't mind that as long as when the time comes, you make the proper ruling. But if you keep delaying and you still came to the terrible ruling, then that's where I really got my issue. But okay, so we've had three times now Maurice's 22 has been submitted for ballistics testing. And none of these tests have connected the gun to the crime scene. So more ballistic tests were ordered. And the results remained the same. This is the fourth time the gun's been submitted for tests. And once again, there's nothing that connects that gun to the crime scene. And then finally, the DNA tests come back. And there's no DNA evidence tying the four men to the crime scene. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know exactly what DNA testing they had done at this point in 1999. Because now, in 2023, the DNA testing that they can do in the case now would not be able to show you who the killer was. It can be used for exclusion purposes. I don't know if it was at that point back in 1999 or 2000, you know, when the trial is going on if the DNA could even be used for exclusion purposes. We'll get more into the DNA later, because we don't know a lot about the DNA to actually after the trials. It's just partial DNA profiles. They don't have a full profile. So I really think back, you know, 23 years ago, what they could do with the DNA was very limited at that point. Now, the judge finally starts to make some rulings on all these motions, and he finds no evidence of coercion of Rob's confession, and he admits it into evidence which is bullshit. He was denied his attorney. I think that is wrong. The lying of the police officers to Rob's attorney was found to be within the bounds of reasonable deception, allowing police to deceive someone while they're being questioned as a suspect. So the prosecution is securing some wins here, but they still don't have much evidence against Pierce, just the other two guys' confessions. Deals were offered by the prosecution to both Rob and Mike if they would testify against Maurice Pierce. You know, by now, both Mike and Rob have retracted their confessions, and they both refused to lie and testify against Maurice. 
So now the state really is realizing they got nothing on Maurice, but they're just going to keep him in jail until they absolutely can't any longer. Now, the next big win for the prosecution, and truly a colossal mistake on the part of the judge, in my opinion, the judge ruled the defense team's access to the evidence would be severely limited. No photocopying of reports or documents was allowed. Instead, the defense would have to sit in the DA's office and make handwritten notes of all the documents. And this is just absolutely appalling. This is just so information doesn't leak out. Honestly, the defendant's right to access the evidence against him trumps the need to limit information coming out to the public pre-trial. Seriously, there are tons of trials that are conducted without a gag order. You know, the gag order is really typically should be, in my opinion, more protects the jury pool from getting a bad opinion and making up an opinion about the defendant's guilt pre-trial. I don't see gag orders usually being to protect the defendant from people thinking he's innocent pre-trial. I mean, does it even make sense? Like, is it are gag orders really supposed to be able to help protect the right of the state to a fair trial? No, I don't think so. I think it's the right of the defendant. And the defendant's rights to a fair trial, they were not harmed when that leak came out about the ballistics report. I mean, the defense investigators, they get carpal tunnel. You know, they're hand copying these reports, Bartleby style. Seriously, I just don't get this. Just because it isn't Xerox doesn't mean it couldn't be leaked. I think this ruling alone should be reversible error on the appellate level. I mean, it's, it's not, but I mean, I think it should be. How do you have one side have unfettered access to all the evidence and the other side can only write down copies of the evidence? The judicial process right there is no longer adversarial anymore. It's one-sided. That's not justice in America. Okay, so while all these pretrial motions related to the leak about the ballistic reports that showed that Maurice Pierce's twenty-two was not the murder weapon, and the motions about the admissibility of the defendant's confessions were being filed and eventually ruled upon, the defense is repeatedly asking for more time to prepare before the first trial. That'll be Rob's trial. And basically, all of these requests are denied, which I don't understand at all. Rob is in jail. He's not out roaming free. What would be the real harm in granting his defense a time extension to prepare fully for trial. This is a death penalty case. I don't see any benefit in rushing to it. Give the defense the time that they say they need to prepare. In my opinion, the only real harm would be to the prosecution because they don't want to face a prepared defense team. And to make the defense position even worse, the judge refusing to grant any of these requests for delays, the judge is delaying all of his rulings on pre-trial motions, basically to the last moment. I mean, on almost everything. He delays the rulings, including whether to permit the confessions. And like I told you, he does allow them in, not only to be used against the defendants individually, but so that confessions can be used against the other defendants. He lets the confessions in completely. They're just redacted somewhat. But his, he wouldn't rule on the admissibility of those confessions. He kept delaying it. And because of that, it really hampers the defense because they basically have to prepare two defenses, one for if the confessions are allowed and one for if the confessions are excluded. Simply put, it's hard to prepare a proper theory of defense until the judge rules on these evidentiary issues. I really think that this was lost on the judge, but he was just so very concerned about how his ruling on the admissibility of the confessions to be used against the other defendant and how that would be perceived, how it would be you know, upheld on appeal. 
I think he was very concerned about that. So much so that he kept delaying it. And it really hurts the defense. And it just pisses me off as a judge needs more time to roll on motions. You know, he gives himself all this time to decide on these motions, but he won't give the defense more time to prepare for trial. I just can't say it enough. It's a capital murder case. It's a man's life on the line here. Give the defense sufficient time to prepare for trial. I mean, the defense is going up against the state. With all of the state's funds and resources, at least give the defense time. It's free. All three defendants were in custody. There is no real harm in granting a delay before the trial. Last two things I'll touch upon before we wind this one up. The state's upset. Maurice is 22. It's turning out not to be the murder weapon. But Going into trial, they're still doing more ballistics tests, just seeing if they can finally find someone that will find that gun to be a match. But they can't. But they keep trying to do it. But even at this point, honestly, after I think they've, we've had three tests, we've definitely had at least three tests done so far, but they're setting it up for more testing. Once you've had it tested three times and it's shown to not be the murder weapon, as a drawer, I wouldn't trust, even if that fourth test came back and said, yep, it's definitely the murder weapon, I really wouldn't believe that fourth test, would you? But it makes me wonder so much because they kept hiding the existence of all those three earlier tests of Maurice's gun from the defense. Were they just planning on a, just keep having this gun tested so they finally find someone, some expert that will say that Maurice's 22 was the murder weapon, and then just hide all the previous tests that showed that it wasn't? It makes you wonder. They really hid that as long as they could. And they were very upset. When the fact that Maurice's gun, the ballistics test, hadn't connected it to the crime scene. When that was leaked to the public, they were very upset by that, the state was. So, they're trying to get that gun connected to the crime scene. The other thing they're doing is tying up loose ends in the confessions. Because the confessions are all over the place. And they don't necessarily match the crime scene. And one of the big things that they're concerned about is Mike Scott had said that an accelerant, lighter fluid, was used to start the fire. And... Mike said the fire was started on top of the girls' bodies. The styrofoam cups were placed on top of them, lighter fluid was poured on top, and then lit up with a Zippo. But remember, the coroner and the crime scene investigators, they never tested the scene or the bodies for the presence of an accelerant, which was a major error. Also, the original fire investigators had determined that this fire started in the metal, stainless steel, restaurant-style shelving towers that contained, like, paper cups, styrofoam cups, plates napkins, that type of stuff. That's where originally the fire investigators thought the fire started there along that wall on that shelving unit. But we have Mike Scott saying that the fire started on the girls and they used an accelerant to start the fire on their bodies. So the state investigators are scrambling to find someone to say that the fire didn't start on that shelving unit, that no, it started with the girls. And unlike the ballistics reports, where they can't find any expert to say that Maurice Pierce's gun was a murder weapon, they are able to find some forensic fire experts that will change the analysis of the crime scene to fit Mike Scott's confession. In our next episode, we're going to start talking about the trials. <laughs> 